We live in an age of political polarization and preference bubbles, of economic change, rising threats, and a rapidly changing world. Canada needs to stay relevant. We need more smart conversations. We need to dive into critical issues and big ideas with passion and unrestrained optimism. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. The 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month, Canada comes together to remember our fallen, to remember the people who sacrificed it all for our liberties today. Going back to the earliest years of our country and certainly the coming of age of Canada in World War I, World War II, Korea, peace conflicts, the Cold War, and of course, today's topic, the war in Afghanistan. We are here to honor those who served our country and helped us create the greatest country in the world. And today I'm very fortunate to be joined on the Blue Skies Political Podcast by General Rick Hillier retired Chief of Defence Staff, who joined the Canadian Armed Forces the year I was born, 1973. <laughs> <My> Lord, <laughs> Sorry to start off that way, General. Uh, after graduating from Memorial University, uh, Rick Hillier joined the Canadian Armed Forces, having been born in Campbellton, Newfoundland, joined the 8th Hussars at first, and then became a proud Royal Canadian Dragoon. An incredible career, rising up the ranks, and first really becoming noticed nationally in some of his leadership responding to ice storms in uh, New, New Brunswick, Ontario, Quebec, and then was the first Canadian to be the deputy commander of a U.S. military base, Fort Hood, and then becoming chief of defense staff between 2005-2008, the challenging years of the war in Afghanistan. So a tremendous career of service and a great person, patriot, to talk about Remembrance here on the Blue Skies podcast. So welcome, General Hillier. Aaron, thank you. And look, I, you make me feel old right away. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. But I, I'm going to give you just a couple of minor, minor corrections, not corrections, but just I put a different slant on two things you said. Perfect. Uh, number one was, yeah, I, I'm a proud Dragoon. Uh, Royal Canadian Dragoons. But I also was, when I served with the regiment, a very proud Hathazar. And we had a regiment of incredible men at the time. It was all men in combat units then. And they were just awesome. And I was equally proud to be a part of that regiment and its great history serving Canada. And actually, I, I didn't wait till I finished university to join the uh, Canadian Forces. I joined and went through regular officer training plan at Memorial University. And in those days, we had a lot of students in each unit or not many universities across the nation. And Memorial was one of those. And so uh, I was I was a member of the Canadian Forces as I studied at university, uh, not Royal Military College, but Memorial University of Newfoundland. Uh, up and I had the privilege to go back in later years after retiring as uh, as a soldier to go back and for five years be the chancellor of that actually beautiful university there. One of the great experiences of my life for sure. Well, you have a commitment both in uniform and out of uniform of service. And we're talking about service and remembrance day today on the Blue Skies podcast. Growing up in Campbellton in Newfoundland, what was your earliest memory of Remembrance Day and how that was celebrated, particularly in Newfoundland? Well, uh, first of all, now you made me feel so old, I can't remember anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was so long ago, but actually I do have this little flash memory. And I've said this before because it was it was a shaping uh, time frame for my life and for me becoming a soldier. And it was, we had this little tiny TV and I know most people who might watch this can't relate to that. It was this little tiny TV. It was black and white and the picture was horrible and it used to roll all the time whenever the reception was bad. And I remember watching the national memorial service at the war memorial in Ottawa on that little tiny black and white screen and just being absolutely enthralled by it. And, you know, the, the governor general, the prime minister, and I'm not sure I recognize the chief of defense staff, at, you know, at the time or whoever was the senior military there. But the laying of Reese and the playing of t at last posts and taps. And, 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 and I remember thinking, you know, how I was, I don't know, I had a cold shiver down my back every time I saw that over two or three or four years. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be incredible? someday to be able to attend our National Remembrance Day service at the National War Memorial in Ottawa. And honest to goodness, you know, the, the fall of 2005, 
all of a sudden I found myself standing there representing the Canadian Armed Forces and all those who served and, and in a different way, perhaps their families also. But I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, a little boy's dream realized in a way I never imagined it would be. And it still thrills me to this day. I, I, I'm still thrilled about going to the National War Memorial. I still get a cold shiver down my my spine here whenever I hear last posting played down there. And the, and, the, and the regimented ceremony that takes place there is just, to me, it's hauntingly beautiful. And, and it comes from that very first memories in Newfoundland, watching the National Remembrance Day program on that little tiny black and white TV and saying, I want to be there. That's a great, uh, a great memory and kind of a dream realized when you were chief of defense staff. And in Newfoundland, I, I love the fact that Newfoundland Labrador, the July 1st commemoration for the Battle of Beaumont Hamill, where uh, the, the Royal Newfoundland Regiment obviously faced very heavy losses in World War I before uh, officially joining Confederation and becoming part of Canada, the, the forget-me-nots and the remembrance that takes place often on Canada Day. Talk about that for a moment, because were there almost two days where there was special remembrance for Newfoundlanders? Well, there weren't almost. There actually were. Uh, and, and, you know, the 1st of July and that horrible day in 1916 at the opening day of the Battle of the Somme when the, when the British commanders thought that the troops would get up and with artillery having pounded the Germans, they would just walk forward. And the enemy would be so devastated, so destroyed, so shell-struck that there would be almost no opposition. And in fact, the Newfoundland Battalion, having come in in the previous winter from uh, Gallipoli, uh, where they really got their feet wet, so to speak, and took some casualties. I think we lost 44 Newfoundlanders at Gallipoli, came into the trenches, were at the forefront of the British attack in the uh, in the 88th Brigade and the 29th Division from the British. And, and it was just horribly prepared and planned amateurish in the extreme across the entire British front. The Newfoundlanders at 8.45 in the morning got the word to the advance. Another battalion had gone first through that same wire, and they just got obliterated. The commanding officer has repeatedly, do you want me to advance, was told, yes, get on with it. And there were only like two or three lanes cut through hundreds of meters of barbed wire and barbed wire entanglements. So as the Newfoundlanders moved forward in two companies, followed by two other companies, so about 200 soldiers in each block and then 200 soldiers in each block behind, uh, they, had to, they had to come down to a very narrow gap in the wire and try to go through. And by now, of course, those gaps were targeted by the German machine gunners, German snipers, and most important of all, most lethal of all, where the German artillery observers and artillery was falling in there. And in the next 45 minutes out of 801 Newfoundlanders, only 62 were all that remained to be able to answer a roll call the next day. And, you know, there, there went the youth and the leadership for the future of Newfoundland. And when we went to, you know, the flu influenza epidemic in 1919 and the, and, and, and the great depression and the failure of the cod fishery, it was not the first time in 1992 mm -hmm. that it failed and all those other things, and then bankruptcy and becoming again a, a, a ward of, uh, of Great Britain in the 30s, uh, we lacked the leadership because of that. And so in Newfoundland, what you saw was, was remembrance of that day. World War II was not a consideration hardly at all. Newfoundland's role with two artillery regiments and in the Navy and the Air Force was slightly different, but that, that destruction of our of our sons from Newfoundland was incredible. And, and, you know, every community and almost every family was affected in, in some way, shape or form. The population was less than 200,000 at the time. So you imagine, you know, 700 people, one yeah. of those 62 survived, you know, the caliber of the leaders came back to be eventually in the fifties, the president of Scotiabank or bank of Nova Scotia at the time. And it was quite incredible. Wow. The talent levels that we had and the talent levels that we lost. So, Morning of 1st of July in Newfoundland is Commemoration Day. And there are ceremonies at the war memorials, there are wreath layings, there are readings of the role of honor of those who went and fought and, 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 and gave their lives in service to us. The afternoon of 1st of July, hey, we celebrate Canada Day. Newfoundlanders can balance these emotions quite <laughs> well. But then Remembrance Day on 11 November is just like the rest of the country. We also commemorate and we also remember there. But again, I would say the vast majority of that remembrance had to do with the first day of the Battle of the Somme, Beaumont Hamill, where the Newfoundland Regiment fought and where we were 
we took such incredible losses that we've never really recovered from that, even though it's a hundred and something years ago now. Yeah, it took a slice out of a generation uh, for Newfoundland. And as you said, that... And, and Aaron, those who joined, you know, when the war occurred and served the king and served the country, I mean, the calls went out. And those who joined, that first swath of, you know, five to a hundred to a thousand and went overseas, they were the sons of the leaders at the time, the businessmen, mm-hmm. the government officials and people of that nature. And just naturally in those days, in those generations, they would have become the next leaders. They all died at Beaumont Hamill. And so at the worst of times in our province in the next 30, 40 years, we were without that incredible leadership. And it certainly paid a toll in our province. We remember them. We remember every single one of them. And we all all appreciate and love the caribou that is the emblem of Newfoundland, the emblem of the badge of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment and its place at Beaumont Hamill and the other six caribous around now the world. uh, And we all remember Absolutely. You forget not. So for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, the forget-me-not flower is as powerful as the poppy. You and I are both wearing our poppies, but you always see a lot of the forget-me-nots, which was a tribute to that lost generation. Very much so. And and I had not realized, honestly, and and so maybe I wasn't paying attention, that as as a soldier in uniform, you were not permitted to wear the forget-me-not. And and on the 1st of July or on Remembrance Day, uh, you wore you wore the poppy, but not the forget me not. And uh, the lieutenant governor of Newfoundland badgered me incessantly when I was chief of defense staff and educated <laughs> me wonderfully. Ed Roberts, uh, a fine man who sadly has passed, and and I signed the order saying yes, we can. This is so important to Newfoundland. If you're a member uh, of the of the Canadian Armed Forces, if you're from Newfoundland, if you're a member of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, you can wear the forget me not on the first of July. Uh, that's that's wonderful. So you talked about those early memories of Remembrance Day as a young kid in, in Newfoundland, and then you joined ROTP when you went to Memorial University. What what led you to join uh, the Canadian Armed Forces at that point? Did you have some family members that had served? Was it that that spirit of service that you saw as a young kid? Was there something that inspired you to put the uniform on? You know, it's hard to say specifically one thing and, and in fact there wasn't specifically one thing there there were a variety of things that led me to wanting to be a soldier from the time i can i can remember and and, and you know I, I used to joke but it was a lot of truth to this when i was eight years old i rode off to a recruiting center asking for information and they wrote back trying to recruit me and, and obviously <laughs> the educational standards were much less in those days than, than what they are now you know it was those memories first of all of remembrance and and all those things about soldiers and and I I think I appreciate it too at a very early age in all of those remembrance ceremonies and the and the film that goes with that and the stories that went with it I think I appreciate it even back in those days what soldiers could do and when I say soldiers I do mean soldiers and aviators and sailors and special forces troopers what they could do to change the world for the good and I kind of wanted to be a part of that secondly I had a I had a great uncle who died. Uh, on the 14th of August, 1917, and he was with the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, 20 years old. All of my life growing up, I had heard from my dad about Uncle John Clark, my great Uncle John Clark, who who left uh, Camelton, Newfoundland, uh, went into St. John's, joined in early 1917, uh, went off with, with the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, ended up at Passchendaele in the early summer of 1917, and was wounded uh, on or about 11 or 12 August of 1917 at Passchendaele, and then died uh, a couple of days later in a medical center just behind the front lines. And I heard about him every day, and, and that certainly became a shaping part of my memory. And I, I, I have his last letter, last two letters home that were written at that time frame, and to read those time and time again, it just puts you in a different dynamic. I had seen his medals. I don't have them. I had seen the medals that he had, but he was part of my remembrance, and he was part of what encouraged me to serve. But I think thirdly, and the last thing, the sort of three things came together. At a very young age, I was reading military history. And I loved it. I think I was 10 when I read The Guns of August. You know, and, and man, that's a that's a tome. And I'm not even sure I could wade through it right now. But I was again enthralled by the idea of being a soldier, of doing something that was so impactful. And I wanted to be a soldier from those days forward. I never changed my mind. You know, as soon as I got old enough, I applied and joined. And, and I served for 35 years, three months, two days, and 14 hours. I loved every minute of it. <laughs> 
There were minutes I did not like, but I loved every minute of it. And I consider myself a soldier now, even though I do not wear a uniform. I soldier for Canada and for a better world. Uh, all of those things came together to make me want to join. I've never regretted that decision. I keep saying, you know, if I could do it all over again, I'd marry that same girl and I'd join and be a soldier all over again. Uh, and, and that's the two things I do all over again in my life. No, and uh, Joyce served right alongside you and you share my passion for supporting our military families. They serve our country. So let's talk about some of that tremendous leadership you demonstrated when you were Chief of Defence Staff, Rick. When we talk about Remembrance Day, and I found even myself when I was Veterans Affairs Minister, we kind of have the paradigm of the older World War II veteran at the Cenotaph. And when we think of of veterans, we think of that big generation where, you know, a million people served and our, our country had that sort of multiple decades of treating and then reestablishing veterans after World War II. But we also have thousands of young veterans in their, in their 30s from the Afghanistan war. And I want to talk about that because I do think as a country, we have to start talking about the modern military history and heritage we have from the longest mission of the Canadian Armed Forces, the war in Afghanistan. When you came in as Chief of Defence Staff in, in 2005, what was the state of play and, and what were you expecting with respect to Canada's service in Afghanistan? Well, Aaron, first of all, what you say is very much correct about, you know, in the, I don't know, 70s, 80s, 90s. It was very much, if you weren't a World War II veteran, then you weren't a veteran. And, and I think in part because there was a vast majority of our troops spent their time training on peacetime operations at sea in the air and on the land uh, rather than on operations uh, shaping things sometimes with violence, either overseas or, God forbid, here in Canada. And, and I think that was, I think for a longer period, I'm going to say this, and I don't want the Legion to come back at me, RC, because I think they're doing wonderful work now. But for a long period of time in the Royal Canadian Legion, which, of course, controlled our remembrance ceremonies and still do and do a wonderful job at it. I think in the view of the Legion, if you weren't a World War II veteran, you weren't a veteran. And I think that included the Korean War veterans. And the leadership in the Legion has changed. They fundamentally changed, and they're welcoming to every single veteran. But I think as we went into the early 90s, and it's not just Afghanistan, I think as we went into the early 90s, and all of a sudden uh, the Cold War ended, and and the peace disappeared and the hot war started in places like the former Republic of Yugoslavia. And, you know, I was saying to somebody just recently, for years there, we had an investment in the former Yugoslavia of more than 4,500 troops, air, land and sea at a time. And, and everybody talked about peacekeeping. There was no peace to keep. We were in the middle of a war and, and we were just being handcuffed, hamstrung in many ways by by people trying to refer to it as peacekeeping. But we had tens of thousands of veterans serve there. We had thousands more serve in Cyprus, thousands more serve in the Middle East. And in fact, help bring a, bring about not a, not a lasting peace because we've had anything but there, but a stability that actually could lead to a lasting peace down the road here. And, and so we've had tens of thousands of Canadian men and women, our sons and daughters, serving all of those places in high-risk situations. They are veterans in every single way that you can imagine. Afghanistan, the last number I, I think I saw was we had 40,000 men and women in uniform. Again, our sons and daughters serve in Afghanistan over that long period in, a, in harsh climate, harsh terrain, with somebody trying to kill them each and every single day. And, and I think the difference there was not only did they serve in Afghanistan in that war, but their families served figuratively alongside them, much more so than any other operation we've ever been on, because we had instant communications with those families in almost every case. And, you know, it worked both ways. The families at home were worried because they know about operations coming up in some, some form or guise. And the troops in theater if something happened to the family back in Petawawa or Edmonton or Valkarsh or anywhere else, they knew about it 10 minutes later. And if they had been distracted by that, if they weren't confident their families were being supported and looked after just as they were, then their attention would have been back there. It wouldn't have been downrange. And as a consequence, the risk to them and their battle buddies would have gone sky high. So I think in Afghanistan, the first thing that came out was our families were serving figuratively there with us. And we had to change how we, how we perceived those families, 
and how then we supported those families and how we responded to the fact that they were indeed serving. And, you know, we used to have all these cynical uh, comments when I was a young kid officer and young, young soldier. And one of them was, if the Army wanted you to have a family, we would have issued you one. And, and you know, and, and that's how we treated our families. They were spare baggies. Well, we had to change that concept, and we did a lot to do that. That was the number one change in going into Afghanistan. Our families were there figuratively with us. Number two was we were hill prepared for war. Uh, we were hill prepared for war. That concept of the peacekeeping operations, even though, again, in the former Yugoslavia, it was anything but that in other places also, and really removed our war fighting skills and really removed our ability to put combat units into theater supported by air, land, and sea, and all the things that go with it. And, and, and there actually was a maritime piece. It came out of the Gulf, uh, the, air, uh, the Arab Gulf, uh, where, where our ships supported aircraft carriers who gave us air support inside of Afghanistan. We were hill prepared going in, and the urgency to rebuild the Canadian forces, have them focus on war fighting, get the right equipments, the right training, and, and, and make each successful successive rotation better prepared to go in and, and do the job, what the urgency to do that was overwhelming. And at the same time, thirdly, we were in a time frame, and I'll stop here, we were in a time frame where I felt that in Canada, we had, start, we had lost, I was going to say we started to lose, we had lost the pride in being a soldier of Canada in serving our nation in the armed forces uniforms. And I think Canadians didn't notice us. When they did, it was normally for negative things, flash forward to today, sadly. And, and I think soldiers, our sons and daughters had lost pride in doing that. And my wife came home from work one day and, and somebody had talked to her and they said, you know, hey, any, something happened. There was a, a, a front page article and somebody had said to my wife, knowing she's married to a soldier, hey, you know, if, if you're in uniform or married to somebody in uniform, you should be ashamed to come out of doors. Uh, kind of thing to come outside. And so those three things were massively impactful on what we were doing. Uh, you know, families were there with us. We were hill prepared to fight that war. And it was at a time when morale was, you know, as low as whales poop uh, in the Canadian forces when our pride and wearing our uniform had suffered. Yeah, no, you've touched on some huge things there. And, and I've seen your leadership in all of them, of course, your creation of the Military Families Fund. And, and uh, I got to work with you when the True Patriot Love Organization supported your efforts to support that 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 family piece. Um, the equipment we remember the the green uniforms at first, and and the pivot from Kabul to Kandahar too. I think you not only help give some pride to to the people in uniform and their families, you kind of shook up Canadian uh, uh, complacency because there was going to be a big change when we took one of the more dangerous provinces in Afghanistan, there were going to be serious injuries. There was going to be casualties. There, there was going to be uh, incredible combat. We saw that. Um, I think a lot of Canadians probably first got to know Rick Hillier when you gave a very colorful description of the Taliban and you basically said, we're going over to, to, to take on these scumbags, or I can't remember the exact quote, I think and, that was it. Was that it? I remember scumbag. You, you basically helped shake the country out of its complacency, saying, hey, our men and women are going to be doing a job for us alongside our allies, and some of them aren't coming home, and we're doing this because we're taking on scumbags that aren't allowing kids, to, girls to go to school. They're, they're uh, killing people, maiming people. Was that comment planned, Rick? Was it just from your heart? And what was the reverberations from it when when it became sort of viral before things went viral? Well, uh, so first of all, yes, the comment was planned. Uh, okay. we, we were still, you know, in a diffuse situation where people talk about, we'll keep peace over there, we'll be peacekeepers over there, we'll be with the UN. You know, we were going to war. And although the term war itself is always used politically, and that's why people want to say, oh, we're at war or we're not at war, uh, there are other uses for it, and 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 we were, and so the term. So I did use the phrase. I did try to describe because I felt, and I I use this. I, I've said something that I still see repeated uh, today. It's kind of interesting to see it flash up from time to time. And I said, you know, when Canadian troops walk on dirty, dangerous trails twelve thousand kilometers from home, 
every Canadian should walk with them. And, mm-hmm. and, and I believe that we could not go out to do those hard things at high risk, so far from home, under such tough, such tough circumstances, with the probability we would not bring everybody home alive without the complete support of our nation. And my intent was to let Canada's moms and dads know what their sons and daughters were going to be doing and that they needed that support. And when I made the comment, and, you know, I was not very good at clearing things with government <laughs> with, with our government before. And, hey, I'm going to say this kind of thing. So a little reverberation there. And, okay, I'll take that. But for about two days, it was pretty sensitive and pretty uh, pretty hyper in the rhetoric that was coming around Ottawa. So two days later, I went to Edmonton, along with the Minister of Defence, a great Canadian, Bill Graham, who sadly just passed, uh, and with the Deputy Prime Minister, who was from Alberta, Ham McClellan. And, and you know, I, I know they were worried about the commentary and what was going on. <laughs> and they walked into the airport at Edmonton, where we were getting 150 troops ready to deploy that evening. And we're going around shaking hands. And they got, they got an onload from our troops, the Patricias, who said to them, it's about time we described it the way it is. It's about time we have a leader in uniform, not a politician. And it's about time somebody says this. And it kind of changed the whole dynamic then when they went back to Ottawa. And yeah, there were repercussions, but actually I think people said, oh my goodness, somebody is saying it right for the first time. I didn't beat on that after that. I just said, these are Canada's sons and daughters. We're gonna send them off to do our nation's will to look after our interests, to carry with them our values, and they need you to be with them the entire time in a whole variety of ways. You know, uh, if, if, a, if a young soldier in your neighborhood, your son, figuratively perhaps speaking, if a young soldier is leaving, then you have an event and say goodbye to that young soldier. And as he's going out the door, tell him you're going to look after his family and you're going to make sure they're all okay. And they're, you're going to look after him. And then when he comes home or she comes home, that you're going to welcome them home in great circumstances and pomp and pageantry, if you will, as the heroes that they are. We're not after things for free. We're just saying, hey, recognize those young men and women. And it takes nothing to do so. And when you see them in uniform or when you identify them, you know, pat them on the back, shake their hand. And at the same time, advocate advocate for them to have the right training, the right equipment, the right numbers, and the right support in the government of Canada. And do all the above as you see fit. But you don't have a vote to stay disengaged. Be engaged. These are your sons and daughters. Uh, well said. And you, I think, woke people up to the fact that there were going to be risks, but also to the fact that we need to be proud. And as you said, walk alongside them on the other side of the world. And their brave eff- uh, exploits alongside that leadership really did resonate. I think having served myself in the in the kind of decade of darkness, and as you were talking about after the Somalia uh, crisis, when there was really stories of people not wearing their uniforms to work changing uh, so they wouldn't be seen in, in public in the uniform. It went 180 degrees. You saw people doing little fundraisers to buy Tim Hortons for the troops. You saw the Highway of Heroes concept of just regular folks, members of the Legion, firefighters, police, seniors out on the bridges of the Highway of Heroes. It was that service and the sacrifice of the men and women in Afghanistan kind of reawoke people's love for our military. Was that a powerful signal for not only our troops on the ground there, but the leadership here in Ottawa? And did it help you in your mission to get the right equipment and get kit over to them so that they could fight this war effectively? Oh, my goodness. Yes, 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 and yes. Uh, did it help? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we, we could not have done this. And what we did during the time, good, bad, or mediocre, a lot or not quite enough, we could not have done any of it without the support of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. And, you know, I recall even after I retired, I was down in the Owen Sound area and uh, with Toronto Dominion, who had put on an event to fill a box for every single Canadian soldier deployed. I think it was 3,800 at the time with everything that you could imagine. We had all these volunteers from around the communities come in, donating things, buying things to, to put into it, and, and then, and then you know, uh, packing them all up and shipping them off. And, and that kind of thing alone, you know, there were members of the legislative assemblies there, there were members of parliament there, and, and they were carrying back, oh my goodness, the support out there is so incredible for our men and women in uniform and what we are asking them to do. And therefore, we need to make sure that they are prepared to do that 
and have the greatest possible chance of success when they come home. You know, I, I was very fortunate, and I said this uh, publicly recently in an interview, I was very fortunate when I came in to be the chief of defense staff that I was selected and has to be by two incredible Canadians, uh, Bill Graham, who I mentioned earlier, but also uh, former Prime Minister Paul Martin, for whom I have the greatest respect and love. Uh, and, and those individuals, you know, they wanted to do what was right. They wanted to rebuild the Canadian forces. As the Prime Minister said to me, when I see the vision that, that resonates, we're going to do it. We're going to do it big time. And, and, and we got on that track about the vision that resonates. And he was incredibly supportive and started us down the road for that rebuild. He, he of course, lost the election. And then Stephen Harper came in. And the, the second two individuals were Stephen Harper and Gord O'Connor. And, and, you know, in different entirely from, from Graham and from Martin, obviously. Yeah. But enormously effective in their support for the Canadian Forces, men and women in uniform, getting the right equipment. And Gord O'Connor was just a work, you know, methodical guy. Hey, we need this number of aircraft. We need this kind of lift. We need this kind of fighting capability on the ground. And, and, and despite a lot of the sort of discussion in the media, he and I worked superbly together. And I said to him one time, and we agreed, I said, you know, Minister, we agree on far more than we can ever afford or have time to get done. So you and I focus on all of that. And the stuff that we'd have to discuss we, we'll get to that if we ever get the money and or time. And so we worked very well together. Uh, the prime minister, when we ran into Medusa in fall of, or early fall, so Labor Day weekend of, of, of uh, 2006, and Gordo O'Connor and I went to the cabinet and said, hey, we need more in Afghanistan. We can't carry the weight, the water in Kandahar with what we have. The prime minister and cabinet, and I recall Peter McKay, uh, Jim O'Flaherty, uh, you know, just stepping up and, and saying, yep, we got to do this and let's do it now. The only thing I regret is the finance minister said to Gord O'Connor, oh, let's take it out of D&D's budget. I said, no, 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 <laughs> we need all of that money. Uh, it helped us. Uh, I was blessed by those two prime ministers and those two ministers of defense and, and chiefs of staff that really supported through some very, very difficult times. And we made sure that as far as humanly possible, and it wasn't perfect, I, I don't pretend that, that our men and women were prepared to go over and we were meeting our goal of making each rotation in of a, essentially a brigade combat team in that was better prepared by the training in Wainwright, the equipment they had, the lessons we had learned over the preceding, you know, one to six months that they were better prepared than the ones who were leaving. And that when they came back, they were starting to get the support they needed back here. So it all came back to Canadians supporting it. If Canadians hadn't supported their sons and daughters in the ways we've talked about and 10,000 others, you know, all those baseball games and basketball games and hockey games where the Washington Capitals had a Canadian Forces Appreciation Game in Washington, D.C. I mean, like, how cool was that? It was just absolutely wonderful. Without that kind of grassroots support, uh, we wouldn't have had a chance. No, it was it was heartwarming to see and... Uh... I had the good honor of, of, of attending some of them, including uh, the Maple Leafs, which I know uh, you like as well. They do a fantastic military appreciation night. The Sens, the, the Oilers, Flames, Canucks, they've all maintained it too, which has been wonderful. We had Luke's troops, remember, at, at the Leafs games, and, and that has been continued where they highlight a serving member and their family in the stands. It was spectacular, and I, I think – bravery of our men and women, but also the, the, the kick in the ass that you kind of gave the, the country, I, I think came at the perfect time. I, I, I want to leave this. Uh, those are all highs. I also want to talk. Let, about could I, could I, Aaron, could I, you said, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A couple of little points here on this one. Look, I talked about some really good leaders that made a difference. Yeah. As we were in that tough time. Well, there were some, some folks out there in that sporting world, but the Canadian world who did it, you know, when, when young soldiers on a mission in Afghanistan at three o'clock in the morning, come into what was called Canada house, a big tent with a big TV in it. And, and they're coming in This is April. I think it is. And, and they're coming in at three in the morning because they can't sleep and they're getting ready to go out, but they're going to watch a couple of periods of that hockey game. And sitting there in the middle of the tent watching his team play as Paolo Acolini uh, from the Vancouver Canucks, you know, one of the owners. And I said to him, shoot, Paolo, I said, you know, if I were, if I owned an NHL team when they were in the playoffs, I think I'd be there. He chose <laughs> to be in Afghanistan to show his support. Brian Burke, give Brian Burke so much credit. He, he drove the Leafs and, 
and, and really Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment to do so much and, and went to Afghanistan himself several times. And Eugene Melnick did exactly the same thing. And, and I, I can never thank any of those individuals enough for what they did. And Eugene, uh, when he passed last March, I remember that part so, so fondly of his support for our troops and the fact that he was their number one fan. So there were people, leaders around the country who just stood up and, and you were one of those and Michael Burns and of course, Sean Francis with True Patriot Love, which continues to be marvelous to this day. That's part of our grassroots support, which allowed us to be as successful as we could be as a nation, I believe, during that time frame. Well, I think everyone wanted to do their part. They saw my, my community where I grew up, Omenville, uh, you've been there, is on the Highway of Heroes. And so I was out on the bridges. And I think everyone, whether the sports world, the corporate world, that's what True Patriot Love grew out of. Everyone wanted to do their part, whether it was the, there was an elderly lady in my community that that raised money for Timmy's cards that she then sent over to, to Kandahar so that they could buy it at the Timmy's. Uh, Don Cherry and some of the, the amazing players, retired NHLers that went uh, to, to the forward operating bases too and met some of our special forces. Everyone kind of did their part. Um, and one thing I wanted to highlight because it was very powerful for our community and you helped come to, to Durham and to Clarington to, to, to open our park and our Highway of Heroes Lav Memorial. The repatriation was probably the most heartfelt Canadian phenomenon during the Afghanistan war where organically people came out on the bridges. There was no mayor or prime minister saying be out on the bridges and show support, show love to those families. It was an organic expression of we know your loss. We we love you and we will not forget your son or daughter. Um, you saw that in action. You know the the power of that phenomenon on the families. Talk about that for a minute, Rick, because I, I think that was probably one of the most special times for our country. And many other provinces in solidarity now have highways of heroes, but that stretch of the 401 between Trenton and Toronto, talk about that special time in our country. Well, you know, as a uniformed service, the Army, Navy, the Air Force, Special Forces, uh, we've always said farewell to those we lose in a ceremonial fashion that is heart-wrenching in its simplicity and its dignity. And, and I, I flash back to April of 2002 when we lost our four young soldiers at Tarnock Farms, and we did this incredible memorial service out in Edmonton. And I was deputy commander of the Army. The day after I was doing an interview, somebody phoned up for an interview and talked about to talk about our loss and what we would do. And, and, and the individual said to me, oh, my goodness, this was just like, completely exhausted this whole process what will you do when you lose the next soldier or next soldiers and i said you know something we'll do exactly what we just did we're going to carry on doing that forever the question is what will the country do will the country follow it as closely and the result the answer was absolutely yes and and, and you know sadly i was down those highway of heroes and and i was in trenton every, every not for every uh, body of a soldier returning but the vast majority of them to meet their families, et cetera. And, and then when those families went down the highway of heroes, no matter how much they had been told about it, how much they had seen it on TV, they were unprepared for the emotional impact on them. And I used to say to the folks that I got an opportunity to talk to who had been on those bridges. And in fact, one time at Bowmanville, if I recall this correctly, we even had the elephant from the Bowmanville yeah. Zoo <laughs> out on the bridge as a Limba. tribute. And, and people yeah. simply crossing their, you know, their hand on their heart, saluting, flags flying. And, and when I had an opportunity to talk to people and thank them for doing that, I would say to them, you got to realize, of course, and I know you do, that for the parents, the spouses, the children, the siblings, you're not, you're not changing one single thing. They still lost their husband or their wife or their son or their daughter or their mom or their dad. But I said, when they lose somebody, Think of how much worse it could have been if they thought that nobody even noticed. And if not only did they, and if even if they noticed that nobody would remember. And that was, that was usually the first question, you know, did anybody notice that I lost my son? And secondly, if they noticed, did they know, did they know what a, what a loss that was? This is my boy, you know, who grew up and he was a bit of a rang and tang and we weren't sure what he was going to do. And I got that story from some parents and, and then, you know, he joined the army. And he found his calling. He wanted to go to Afghanistan. 
And, and, and so question two was, you know, uh, do they understand the, the scale and scope and magnitude, magnitude of that loss? And the third question always was, but will they remember? And, and I say to folks on those bridges who gave that huge emotional impact, by you being there, simply being there, saluting with your flag, just standing there, uh, you answered yes to all three of those questions. And, and it was tough for those parents, that wife, that husband, those, that family member. Think how much more difficult it would have been if the answer to all three questions in their mind was no. And, and I said, by that, you simply carry us as a nation. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, every person who's ever gone out, I want to say thank you from the heart, because you can't imagine the impact that you, you had not only on those families and on the memory of the, the awesome Canadians that we lost, but in the life, the emotion, the psyche of every single serving member, those who are retired and their families, because we felt supported. We felt we weren't alone. And if I could go back to what I said earlier, we felt that figuratively Canadians walk with us. Yeah. And they it was one big embrace of love as you came down the highway from the from the tops of bridges. Rebecca's family was visiting from Nova Scotia when we lost one of our, our soldiers and they were there for the repatriation. And it was so special for them as folks from Nova Scotia to be there with us in Bowmanville on the bridge. And uh, you described uh, uh to a T, Trooper Daryl Caswell from from Bowmanville. His we had one of our own pass under, and his family always said it was when he found the military. He joined the dragoons, and he he found that purpose in life and that heading. And they've they helped uh, organize the Highway of Heroes monument in our community. So so special. So when when Canadians are reminded of of the service of our men and women, they really respond. So on on remembrance, Rick, I want to get into two last topics. One, of course, we talk about uh, loss and and heroics and and then how we can remember. Let's talk first about the fallen from Afghanistan. Uh, Certainly, you talked about Operation Medusa, some of the uh, tremendous, tremendous combat we saw and the the incredible bravery of some of our our men and women. Um, talk about a few a few of those instances that you think Canadians should remember now that we are memorializing this 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 period of our military heritage. I know there are a million acts, many of them not even recognized. But what are one or two that stand out for you and the and the Canadians that just stepped up with tremendous bravery and courage when called upon? Well, I mean, first of all, I think one of the things Canadians will remember, and, and certainly anybody who served in Afghanistan and many of those who did not, because it's been back here since, was what we called our little Afghanistan memorial uh, at the base in Kandahar. And it had a, a plaque on that memorial right there for every single Canadian that we had lost. And, you know, you walk past that small memorial, uh, very simple, very dignified, very emotional, and you salute it. Uh, because you were you were continuing to honor those individuals, to remember them, and to thank them for their service to Canada. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. <clears throat> there were so many acts of bravery as to be unbelievable. And and when I say we were woefully unprepared for war, uh, we were equally woefully unprepared to to I think uh, recognize the kind of courage and bravery in combat that is the mark of the soldier, the sailor, the aviator, and the special forces trooper. And to be able to step up and, and recognize enough of them to make sure that we had done the appropriate things. And I just come to Private Jess Larochelle as a case in point. You know, there's a, a young 20-year-old private deploys in, in uh, late summer of 06 into Afghanistan. On the 14th of October, he deploys to Strong Point Center with his platoon, which is three sections of eight soldiers. One section has gone gone into Kandahar, so they're down. And they arrive there, and, 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 and they're told they're going to get hit. Uh, the intelligence is out. They're going to get hit and very soon. And, and the master corporal running this section said, we've got to put somebody into the observation post here to give early warning. I don't have enough troops to put two soldiers in. That's something we always do. That's tactical doctrine. Never put somebody by themselves. He said, we're so short. Uh, master corporal Jeremy LeBlanc, this was. And do we have anybody who will step up to do it? And Jess Larishel did, stuck his hand up, went up there. They got hit minutes after that. And in particular, in his observation post, he got hit by rocket-propelled grenades. And the first one that had detonated overhead knocked him back into the steel-hard uh, mud walls, which you know, have been dried in the desert for 
thousands of years, probably. Uh, he, he had a retina in his right eye, was detached. He's bleeding from the ears, and he's got vertebrae broken in his back. And somehow he shakes it off. He comes to, regains consciousness. And he said it was kind of like Star Wars with the RPG-7s detonating overhead inside. He got onto the machine gun, and he just started uh, shooting into the attacking group of about 40 attackers. He fired so many rounds that he only had 100 left or thereabouts. And he said, I, I kept the 100 just in case a last-ditch sort of assault. And then he started picking up the the M72 disposable rocket launchers in, in the observation boat. These are just cardboard tubes. You extend them, the sights pop up. You pull the safety back and arm it, and you put it on your shoulder and fire it, and you throw it away, the tube that's left. And he started firing one after the other, after the other, after the other, at individual soldier or individual Taliban that were attacking him. Uh, this went on for well over an hour and a half. Uh, and, and, and finally, the attack sort of dies down a little bit in huge part because of his bravery and valor and because of the fire he brought to bear. The lieutenant, uh, the platoon commander, goes uh, running forward to get up to the OP. He looked at it and said, oh, my goodness, ain't nobody going to be alive inside of there. That thing is totally destroyed. And this little head popped up, and it was just La Rochelle, and said, hey, sir, I'll put some covering fire down. You come on in. Uh, the lieutenant went in, and he said, uh, you know, Jess, you've done your job. I'll, I'll replace you. And he said, Jess said, no, sir. Uh, I've got it. Don't put somebody else in this environment. I know the lay of the land now. I'm here. And he volunteered to stay on. He got reinforced by a warrant officer. So both of them there overnight. The next morning, he was relieved. Another platoon came in. Uh, during the fight, they had lost two of their of their uh, members of their platoon. And so they headed back to Canada, our airfield, to do the ramp ceremony to say farewell to them. It was only after that that Private Jess Larishel, 20 years old, a son of our nation, said to the medics, I'm hurting just a little bit, and went off and we discovered his back was broken, his retina is detached on his right eye, bleeding from the ears, and this kid has been beaten up brutally, wounded badly, and, and he was taken out of combat and over a series of painful steps, uh, returned to Canada and went through medical support, still having major, major issues from that. He was awarded the Star of Military Valor. Uh, I chaired the honors and awards, the Canadian Forces Honors and Awards Committee at the time that recommended that. And I remember saying to his commanding officer when I saw him in Afghanistan, Homer Lavoy, uh, who retired as a lieutenant general, I said, you know, Jess was as close to a Victoria Cross winner as I've ever seen, as I've seen in my life. And I said, we made our decision in part because that it was star of military valor, not Victoria Cross. In part because we were, I say this kind of humorously, we were kind of like the French figure skating judge uh, <laughs> of infamous reputation from the, uh, I think it was 2004 Olympics, where she was saving her marks for when the French skaters came onto the ice. And of course, that was found out and, and overturned. And we were kind of saying, you know, well, if Jess wins it, what if somebody now next week is going to be even more valorous? Uh, and in fact, we shouldn't have been saying that in my view. Uh, nobody could be more valorous. Others could be equal, but nobody could be more than Jess Rochelle. And I think he deserved the Victoria Cross. But there is one example of a 20-year-old son of our nation standing tall, doing the duty to, for, you know, that we asked him to do and doing it without, you know, relating to the fact that he's been shot at. People are trying to kill him. He's been wounded and he still carries on the fight. And, and just such a you know, just such a quiet young man, uh, nothing, nothing sort of over the top about him, unassuming. And those are, you know, one of the 40,000 who served in Afghanistan, the other 39,000 and change were just like that. Incredible Canadians. And we saw examples of that courage every single day. Yeah. Talked to a young Corporal Fage, who was a gunner in a lab, in a lab three and on the 14th of August, 2006, at the start of Op Medusa, the day they took over the mission from the other battle group leaving, uh, you know, they got hit by 75 to 100 Taliban, just kept coming at them, firing at them. And he just stayed there, exposed to the fire in his in his turret and just, you know, fired into attack after attack after attack to make sure that the Taliban weren't going to take over Kandahar City and cut off the troops that were out there. We saw one example after, after another of, of valor, of courage, of bravery and simply service before self. Uh, that was incredible. Valor in the face of the enemy, um, extraordinary courage from ordinary soldiers that are stepping up into remarkable 
situations and the training kicks in, but then that deep courage and valor kicks in. Uh, as you know, both of us have been trying to echo some of the efforts from valor in the presence of the enemy and Bruce Moncourt and the Afghan Afghanistan War Veterans Association, Bruce himself, an injured Afghanistan war vet, they've been raising awareness of the Jess La Rochelle case that you know, tens of thousands of Canadians have emailed, have signed the petition. Because I think, you know, the longest mission in Canadian Armed Forces history, as you said earlier, Rick, 40,000 men and women served there one capacity at, at some point. These are tens of thousands of modern war veterans in our country now. And no Victoria Crosses, uh, 18 star mil, uh, mil, uh, military valor, which is an incredible distinction. But what does it say when we're not willing to look back and recalibrate and get it right? As you said, we there was a reluctance to award because you're almost waiting for this unicorn case to, to come out of the wilderness. But if you actually look World War II and, and World War I, depending on the time of war, depending on the circumstance, there were citations for the Victoria Cross, not as, uh, you know, tremendously tough, arduous injuries as as Jess's case. Is this something that Canada should have a, a body to, to look at this in a, in a non-political arm's length, take the emotion and, away and just make sure we get it right? Do you support an initiative like that? Uh, Aaron, I do, and, and and let me just say at the front end here, as I mentioned, I chaired the Canadian Forces Honors and Awards Committee that assessed the citation in Jessler, about Jessler Rochelle. And it's just a, you know, I think two paragraph citation. The amount of information in there is uh, sparse, frankly, uh, and, and so I accept responsibility that we did not push harder uh, for a Victoria Cross nomination for him. I recommend to the Government Honors and Awards a, a Victoria Cross, i.e., to the Governor General. Uh, but you know. I think that Canada would be served appropriately by an ability to do independent reviews, a neutral independent review of of cases of recognition or lack of recognition that there is a sufficient that there is sufficient reason to review. And, and you know, I, I look at the United States of America, and we love to criticize the Americans, but my goodness, they they've got it squared away. They've got a independent review, an independent review. And they're working back to the wars in their nation's history. And they're saying, you know, hey, there was somebody here. If that person had been anything but or in any area, he or she would have been awarded the Medal of Honor. And they, I think, awarded something like 25 Medals of Honor that they felt individuals should have received, was appropriate to have received, and did not get it for one reason or another. I'd love to see an independent review a committee established in Canada and use the case of Jessler of Shell because I think there is sufficient richness of details, how I would describe it, about what happened on that day and the extent of his wounds and, and the fact that he carried on valorous in the face of the enemy despite those wounds over such an extended period of time. Use that case as, as, a, as a first one to get going. And I do think if we had an independent review and we looked at Jessler of Shell, there would be no reason not to actually start looking back in history at World Korea, World War II, World War One. You know, uh, there were there were many different things in, in in our nation at the time, and I think back to Francis Pagamagabao, you know, the great sniper of World War One, with 376 kills to his credit, wounded multiple times, gassed at Ypres in, in April 1915, and to the extent that he had to sleep sitting up for the rest of his life because his lungs were burnt so badly inside. And if he had, if he had been lying prone, he would have drowned in his own liquids inside. I think that military, military medal winner times two, I kind of think if he had been a Caucasian, he probably would have been a Victoria Cross winner. Sergeant Tommy Prince from the Devil's Brigade, the first special forces, his actions alone in Southern France in August of 1944 where the Germans thought they were surrounded by a company of soldiers, and it was Sergeant Tommy Prince by himself who, who prevented a French platoon from being annihilated, I think maybe he would have been a Victoria Cross winner if it had been done impartially and, and the way we would do it now. So I think an independent review, absolutely independent, independent of government, independent of the Canadian military, and, and do an honest assessment, uh, you know, 
all of our allies seem to be able to do this, and we in Canada appear not to be able. So Australia said, no, we don't do that. And then two months later, they actually do it and recommend an 18-year-old sailor from 1942 to the Queen for the Victoria Cross before she passed, obviously. And that young sailor posthumously received a Victoria Cross. I think an independent review uh, to consider any additional detail Consider the circumstances as best possible, and you might not be able to come to decisions. That's 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 the way it is. Would be appropriate for a nation like us. I agree one hundred percent. I also think we owe it to our men and women that serve, particularly the Afghanistan War Veterans Association, have, have called for this with respect to to Jess Labershell. And we have to be mature enough, as you said, to realize there probably were attitudes of the day in the past for indigenous soldiers, minority soldiers, Jewish soldiers. I've already heard of a number of cases where people deserve a second look. That type of extraordinary valor means that we at least have to be willing to give an impartial, independent look to make sure that somebody's heroics and incredible bravery wasn't uh, diminished because of, of intolerance or these sorts of things. So I brought a motion forward months ago, as you may know, we had sort of all party support until the last minute. And I think, you know, somewhere, somewhere in one of the big office towers here in Ottawa <laughs> resisted it. But I do know there's a lot of goodwill um, out there for it. And I, I do think this Remembrance Day, let's remember the incredible service and sacrifice of 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 our Afghanistan war veterans, including people like Jess Lavershell, who, as you said, in Sudbury, he is still recovering from those wounds uh, of, of service. And I think uh, Canadians this year, let's, let's remember that. One thing I want to say as we wrap up, Rick, and thank you for your incredible service. I've, I know you well enough, and I'm, I'm privileged to call you a friend. You always deflect your, your own leadership and your own conduct, but I've watched your incredible leadership to the point that on the National Day of Honor here in Ottawa, when the Afghanistan mission ended and we we had this magnificent celebration of that dedication of our men and women, the 40,000, as you said, and and uh, Simon Mayu and Rick Hansen were the were the uh, the chairs of the event here, Simon Mayu, an incredible <laughs> injured veteran who redeployed, Rick Hansen, an honorary colonel, tremendous person. It was a wonderful day. And I look out and there in the ranks on the front lawn of parliament is Rick Hillier. You weren't up in the dais. You weren't up. You were down with the troops. And and I pointed out to Rebecca and I, I said, that is is leadership. You were out there in the ranks with the folks you served with. Uh, Aaron, thank you for saying that. And and no better place to be than in the ranks <laughs> of those incredible men and women. And I had not I had I had, had mixed emotions and I didn't want to detract from the, the or take the limelight from those incredible folks. I wasn't sure I'd go. I was doing some work with TELUS at the time, and I'll give them full credit here. Uh, folks reached out to me and said, Hey, I was in Newfoundland and said, Hey, we think you should be at the National Day of Honor. So I flew to Ottawa. I went into the TELUS building downtown that morning. And when I walked in, there were about 75 people in the lobby who just uh, who applauded. And I know they were clapping. I was there, but they were applauding every soldier, sailor, airman, or woman who had who had served in Afghanistan. And it was just emotional. And and that day was absolutely incredible. It was beautifully done. I was quite content uh, to be in the ranks uh, with the brothers and sisters uh, with whom I served, and almost all of whom I knew in some way, shape, or form. And it was the most incredibly emotional time and I think rewarding time uh, that I can remember. It was awesome. Well, you were fortunate to be with your brothers and sisters in arms, Rick, and those brothers and sisters in arms, our men and women in uniform, military families, our veterans have been tremendously fortunate to have your leadership for, for Canada your 35 years and several days and hours. But your time as chief of defense, when you helped with thousands of Canadians reawaken our respect and our love for our, our military and their families. Thank you for your incredible service. And thank you for joining the Blue Skies Remembrance Day podcast with me today. Aaron, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And for me as service, it was a labor of love. It was and remains thus. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, that has been a very powerful Remembrance Day Blue Skies podcast at the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. And we've had some 
great memories from Canada's chief of defense staff during some of the challenging years of the Afghanistan war. And we need to remember our history, our military heritage as we stand at our cenotaphs, whether here at the National War Memorial or I'll be in Bowmanville with Branch 178 of the Royal Canadian Legion. Lest we forget this Remembrance Day, thank a veteran, wear a poppy, attend a cenotaph ceremony, and make sure we show support to those who serve us. Thanks for tuning in to the Blue Skies Podcast. We will remember them. Old Canada. Well said.